Amen. Good morning. It's good to see you all. Go ahead and have a seat. Get yourself comfortable. First Corinthians chapter 3. This morning, if you have your Bibles, you might want to turn there. First Corinthians chapter 3. So far, what we've been seeing is the Apostle Paul has been talking to the church in Corinth about the wisdom of God versus the wisdom of this world. You see, the Folks in Corinth were super impressed by philosophers and they were impressed with gifted orators and education and intellectualism and all of that kind of thing. And Paul's trying to scrape them of that. He had begun the church, laid a foundation on, as we saw last time, Jesus Christ and him crucified. And then the church, well, they bought into that, but then they started adding atop of that worldly wisdom, which is not needed because the gospel is sufficient in and of itself. Actually, it's quite humbling to know that it is, that it's not your persuasiveness um, or your gifting that leads someone to Christ when you're sharing your faith, but it's the power of the message itself. One pastor was uh, telling a story one time of a Christmas Eve service in which he put out an invitation for people to receive the Lord and one woman raised her hand to receive Christ. And he was going over to welcome her and give her a Bible and that kind of thing. And it was early on for him, he was a young pastor and he started thinking, I wonder what it was that I said. You know, what word of wisdom that was in my message that really got her to come to Christ? I just want, I'm gonna ask her and see. So he goes over there and come to find out that she was invited there by a friend and uh, she'd already made up her mind she was going to receive Christ. She was just waiting for him to get done talking. <laughs> and it's a reminder for us also, you know, that we're just tools in, in God's hands. That a simple message, as we saw last time, delivered by a simple vessel is enough. So why would we try so hard to incorporate the wisdom of the world, which he said last time is coming to nothing. The wisdom and the values of this world, as persuasive as they may be on this culture, he said it's all coming to nothing, all of that, when it's all said and done. This week I saw an interview that left an impression on my mind. Apparently, and maybe you know the story, and this is not uncommon, this happens all the time, but apparently there are a lot of young women that are falling for the younger brother of the two suspected bombing terrorists. Uh, they're sending him letters and, and that posting on Facebook, that kind of thing. This is not uncommon. This happened when the police officer in Southern California went rogue and went on a killing spree because he thought he was passed over for jobs and people started to think he was the dark knight or some kind of vigilante or something like that. And so this psychiatrist was brought on this cable news show and was asked about this phenomena. And she said, well, it doesn't really surprise me. What it is is just a picture of how dramatic our values have changed in this culture over the last 15 years. She cited a massive survey they had done. In 1997, among young people, the values at the top of their list were things like a community and kindness. But today among the top things on their list for young people are things like celebrity, 
fame, self-image, and financial success. All of which are things that are coming to nothing. Those things, when it's all said and done, aren't going to matter one bit. And so this is why the Apostle Paul is encouraging all of us, for most of you that know the Lord or have been walking with the Lord for some time now, it's just a great reminder because we can fall into this same trap of getting wholly caught up in the things of the world when all of those things are coming to nothing ultimately. Last time, as the Apostle Paul wrapped up chapter 2, he basically identified two different kinds of people in the world. Everybody fits into one of these two categories. There is the natural person, that's the unregenerate, unsaved person. He said that person cannot discern the things of God. So they can't even receive the correction that we're getting from the Apostle Paul this morning because they have not given their lives to Christ yet. So there's the natural person, and then there's also the spiritual person. Person. That's the person that is born again of God. But the spiritual person, at times, can fall into a subcategory. When they get too caught up in the things of this world, there's a subcategory underneath the spiritual person, which is the carnal person. And that's how they were behaving in Corinth. Look what he says, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1. He says, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. So notice they are believers because they're babes in Christ, as he says. But he says, I could not speak to you as spiritual people, but as to carnal. He says, verse, verse 2, I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it, and even now you are still not able. Maybe you've heard that term before, carnal Christian. The word carnal just means fleshly. It is someone who is spiritual, meaning they're not the natural man, they're the spiritual man. They are born again, but they are still dominated and controlled by the lusts and the desires of their flesh. Now, don't get me wrong on this, because in Romans chapter 7, the Apostle Paul said that he was carnal. So I don't know if this is like the state of a person or um, it's a category. I lean more in the direction that it's the state of a person. In other words, that all of us that are Christians at times are carnal. And the church in Corinth was acting that way. They were acting like carnal Christians. And he likens carnal behavior in a Christian to that of a baby. Now, there's nothing wrong with a baby. Something wrong with a baby Christian. A baby Christian is adorable. Right? They are, they're needy, you know, and they have the joy of the Lord. They weep, you know, because they can't believe their sins are forgiven. They don't know how church protocol works. They have lots of questions, that kind of thing. But one of the things about a baby, I don't know if you noticed this, but they tend to be me-centric. You picked up on that? You know that they're a little bit about me, a baby is? When they don't get their way, they cry a lot. Now, that's fine, when they're still a baby, okay? A baby is a baby for a season, and that's kind of cute, as long as they're a baby. You know, a few weeks ago, my wife and I were up visiting my little brother's new baby. And, you know, I don't uh, have a hard time, you know, uh, holding babies. I get nervous when we dedicated Aaron. I wanted Gina to like 
hold her hands underneath Aaron because I'm afraid I might fumble or something like that. But I went for it. It's my brother's baby. I'm like, I'm doing this. But it's so funny. We were there the whole first day. Everyone held the baby, and she was just quiet and peaceful, sleeping the whole time. It was really good. And then I hold the baby, and about five seconds, she was good. And then she cried, and she spit up on me. It was adorable. That's really cute. As long as they're a baby. 25 years later, they're still crawling around the crib and saying, Mama, that's not so cute anymore. There's a season to be a baby. There's a season to be a spiritual baby. And then there's a season in which Paul said, we got to get off of only milk and move on to the solid food. In the King James, solid food is translated meat. And by the way, that's how you know right now, I'm not trying to read your mind. I don't know what's going on in your mind. But that's how you know right now whether you're in a carnal state or not. Ask yourself this question, what are you craving in your life? Are you craving the meat of the word or the meat of the world? Two completely different things. And that will tell you, where's your focus right now? And I don't say this to in any way attack you. I just know what it's like. I could be sitting in Bible study and thinking about tonight because something's going on tonight or this week or my vacation next weekend or whatever the case may be. And my desires are for the things of the world and not for the things found in the word of God. And as long as your appetite is driven more by the things of this world, it's going to stunt your growth as a Christian. You know, just as it would break any parent's heart, and I'm not talking about diseases that prevent a child's growth, but just as it would break any parent's heart not to see the natural development of their child intellectually, emotionally, spiritually, physically, down throughout the years, in the same way it breaks our Heavenly Father's heart when as Christians we stop growing. We should never Stop growing as Christians. You should not be the same person today that you were six months ago because we should always be growing in Christ. But apparently the Corinthian Christians were not. How do we know? He says, verse 3, for you are still carnal. Now, what marked their carnal behavior? Well, he tells us, middle verse 3, for where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? Now look at those first two words, envy and strife. Envy and strife are not of God, okay? Envy is me wanting something that someone else has or that I don't have. And strife is fighting to get it. So you put the two together and it's me wanting something and fighting to get something I don't have. And that is not of God. Now he's speaking here within the context of the church body but it's true out in the world as well. Well, I can strive in the world and just not in the church. I don't know about that. I don't think they're striving at all in the kingdom of God. I'm not, I'm not talking about working hard at your job, working towards a promotion. I'm not talking about any of those things. We should be great workers because we should do our jobs as unto the Lord. I'm just saying I don't agree with the wisdom of this world that says you should set a whole bunch of goals for yourself and then, you know, excel and you should get more in life and you deserve more and you should get more money and a bigger house and a better car and all those kinds of things. That goal you'll never reach. Want to know why? Because the second you have more, what do you want now? 
you want more. So you'll never, ever do that. There was one personal development teacher that made that his life word more. I'm like, that. you got to start over, bro, because you'll never accomplish that. The second you have more, you'll want more. But certainly within the church, envying and striving, the second that you ever hear yourself, not that you do this, but ever hear yourself thinking, well, how come that person got to do that ministry and not me? Or how come they didn't implement my idea, but they implemented their idea? Or why did the church do this when we wanted them to do that? You know that that's envying and striving, and that is carnal. That's not spirit-led. And by the way, because of our propensity as Christians sometimes to vocalize what's going on in our heart, envy and strife leads oftentimes to division. And so that's what he says in verse 4. You know what the divisions were, right? He says, for when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? And we know from chapter 1, they also put Cephas in the mix too, who's Peter. We're of Paul. He's the founder of the church, and we're loyal. Yeah, well, we're of Apollos, and he's the Polish gifted orator. He's a much better speaker than Paul. And then there was another group who's like, well, we're of Peter. Peter walked on water. Your two guys never walked on water. You know, so it gets kind of silly after a while. Now, you expect this from children, from babes. You expect on the playground, my dad can beat up your dad kind of thing, right? My dad's got a bazooka, so what? You know, we did those things as kids growing up. You expect a certain amount of whining maybe even fighting and crying in the nursery. You just don't expect it in the sanctuary. As someone once said, it is amazing what can happen when we are not any longer concerned about who gets credit for whatever. And you know, it will be amazing for a church, for our church as a church body, when we pretty much just get our eyes off of people in general, off of ministers, off of musicians, off of ministries. It was the late uh, G. Morgan Campbell who said the more spiritual a man is, the less denominational he is. Not that he's anti-denominational either, because that's just as prideful. Oh, I'm non-denominational. There's nothing wrong with a denomination unless the denomination elevates itself above their position in Christ, which is first and foremost what I am, a Christian who I affiliate with is totally and completely secondary to the fact that I am in Christ. And so a surefire sign of carnality is when we begin to elevate and divide over various personalities or ministry philosophies that govern church bodies. And that's what he says. He uses himself, he inserts himself into the illustration here to make a point. Look what he says, verse 5. Who then is Paul? And who is Apollos? but ministers, just instruments, through whom you believed as the Lord, and look what it says, gave to each one. So the Lord has given a gifting for each instrument to be used in the church body the way that he sees fit. And so the idea here is, then why would we ever elevate one instrument over the other that is just a tool in God's hands? And I remember that I used to be a lot like this early on as a babe in Christ. 
I was very comparative in that sense, contrasting different kinds of teachers and, oh, this guy's way better than that guy and all this kind of thing. And, oh, these people over here should be more like these people over here. And this church should change their ways and do it like that church. And at one point, my wife just kind of turned to me and said, hey, you know, sensing the critical spirit inside of me, which it was. She said, you know, at some point, aren't you just arguing with the gifting of the person which comes from God? And I was like, yeah, actually, when it's all said and done, that's absolutely correct. To elevate an instrument in God's hands over the one who's wielding the instrument makes no sense. It'd be like me going into your house and you have a beautiful painting on the wall and for me to say, wow, that's a nice painting. I'd love to see the paintbrush that was used in making that painting, right? Or you go through a successful surgery and afterwards you go to the doctor who performed the surgery and say, hey, can I see the scalpel you used? It doesn't make any sense, but that's what they were doing in elevating human teachers to a place that those human teachers did not belong because it was God that was doing the work. Look what he says, verse six, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. I love what Ironside said. He said, so when it's all said and done, what's the use in arguing over which nothing is greater than the other? You got two nothings, and they're arguing over which nothing is better than the other nothing. It doesn't make any sense. There was an agricultural school in Iowa that studied what goes into producing 100 bushels of corn. The effort and the ingredients and all of that. You know, you got water and carbon and nitrogen and potassium and these things. And after their study, they concluded that in coming up with 100 bushels of corn, that about 5% of that is due to the farmer. Just 5%. Now, the same thing I believe is true for the spiritual harvest, for souls, for the kingdom, that we play a pretty small role when it's all said and done in comparison to the work of God and the work of the Holy Spirit in and through us. Our role is minor. We can plant and we can water, but we can't change a human heart. In fact, have you ever looked into someone's eyes and you're just like helpless? There's nothing I can do or say. And yet sometimes that person later on comes to Christ and you're like, how did that happen? Because it isn't my wisdom, it's not my persuasiveness. It is God working. And so he said in there, verse six, it's God who gives the increase. Verse seven, he said it again, it's God who gives the increase. See, the problem is the church is making the same mistake as the world. The world is not the only ones who get overly enamored with personalities, with leaders, with speakers and teachers. The church does it too sometimes, to a fault, where we elevate that person to a place they don't belong. And what we need to remember is that person is just a tool in God's hands, and they could not do what they do except God give them the ability to do it. Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. And literally, he means that you can't do a single thing without him. You can only do what he's given you the ability to do. Reminds me of that 
old illustration. Many of you probably heard it before, but it's worth repeating here in this particular instance. It's the day that the scientists decided to go to God. And they said, you know, uh, God, we don't need you anymore. And he said, oh, really? All right, well, let's have a test to see. And if you pass the test, I'll get out of your way. And they said, all right, bring it on. What's the test? And so God said, create a human life. And they said, ah, oh, well, we know that the basic elements that comprise a human body come from the very soil in the ground. Which, on a side note, by the way, isn't that interesting that the scientific community knows that now? But we knew that thousands of years ago in the book of Genesis. Just saying. So anyway, they say, fine, God, we'll do it. We'll create a human life. So they go to grab the soil in the ground, and God says, wait a minute, use your own dirt. You cannot do anything without God. It tells me a couple things. Number one, it tells me that I ought to not think too highly of anyone except Jesus Christ. I should not be impressed by anyone. They're just a tool in God's hands. Number two, when God uses you, and he will, deflect the glory. It doesn't belong to you. It belongs to him. Because God gives the increase. He's the one who gives the increase. We, as different tools in God's workshop for different tasks, ought to be complementing each other, not competing with one another. He says in verse 8, Now he who plants and he who waters are one. You need both. What kind of a crop would you have if the planters were like, it's all about planting, man. It's all about planting. Those waterers, they don't know anything. Or if the waterers were like, those planters, if they didn't have us, I mean, what kind of a crop would you have if you only watered but you didn't plant? You'd have no crop at all. You need both. So I'm not saying that we are irrelevant in God's equation. No, God uses people. I'm just saying God is the one who brings the increase. And so what does he desire from us? He desires from us, since we're not responsible for the results, he desires from us same calling everybody has in general, different in specific, but in general, God's calling on our life is to be faithful. Faithful to the labor in which we're called. It says then, and, end of verse eight, each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. So do you get that? That God will reward us based upon our labor, based upon our efforts, not based upon the results. And he'll do that when, and probably only if, we work together. That's why the church is referred to as the body of Christ. Because what good would my Romans 10, beautiful feet be. That's what Romans 10 says. If I didn't have a brain to equip those beautiful feet. Or what if I had bum knees? My feet can't go very far, can they? You know, the hip bone's connected to the thigh bone and the thigh bone's connected to the knee bone and everybody in the body of Christ is connected and dependent upon one another. A living organism, the church is, the body of Christ is. And so we have to be working together. 
I heard this week, and I don't know how they do these studies, but this actually sounds right, that the average person comes to Christ after hearing the gospel 7.6 times. So that tells me two things. Number one, don't give up on people too soon. You keep planting. You keep watering. But, man, I've had like five sit-down conversations with her, and she's just not budging. Well, maybe you need to have 2.6 more conversations with her. That's reality. Don't throw in the towel. The second thing this tells me is that you may never know, by the way, or see the fruit of your labor. You may be used by God to be one of those 7.6 exposures to Christ and never see that person come to Christ. And so we got to be faithful even though we don't get to see the results all the time. I don't even know in my own life who those 7.6 people were. I know my parents led me to Christ. But undoubtedly, grandparents, aunts, uncles, Sunday school teachers, coaches were involved in my development. I don't know who they are, and they don't know that I'm a Christian necessarily or what I'm doing with my life. So I believe, and I know a lot of you do too, that God someday is going to reward you for playing a part in someone coming to Christ even though you don't ever even see them come to Christ. That's a wonderful, wonderful thing. So faithfulness is the key. Labor is the key. Consistently doing the things that God has called you to do and let him worry about the results. He says, verse 9, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. Now he's going to shift the metaphor a little bit from an agricultural metaphor to an architectural metaphor. And you'll notice he's going to begin with the foundation. Now, they don't have a problem with the foundation in Corinth, as do most of us in this room that are Christians. Your foundation is Jesus Christ. He's going to identify that first. The problem is what we build upon that foundation. That's where we'll spend the bulk of our time. Okay, but first the foundation. This should be obvious. Verse 10, according to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it. That's Apollos who was building on that foundation. But let each one take heed how, and notice it's how and not if, because he assumes that all of God's children are workers in the kingdom. Okay, so don't miss that subtlety there. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. Now we'll come back to that in a second, because that's going to be the important point. But verse 11, here's the starting point. Verse 11 says, For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, for most of us, we have no problem with that. We're like, oh yeah, absolutely. Foundation is Christ. Most of the Christian churches out there, foundation is Jesus Christ. We're in agreement on that. The people in Corinth were in agreement on that, that the foundation has to be Christ. You anchor any ministry to an amazing facility or a philosophy of ministry or a dynamic personality. And you're talking about a ministry that has a very shaky foundation. Remember we used to sing, and every once in a while we still do, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. I'm not going to sing it for you. All other ground is... So did someone say amen? Yeah, when I said that? I'm not going to sing for amen. Don't sing it for us. 
All other ground is sinking sand. Now, what's true here for a church is also true of an individual human life. And actually, Paul's going to segue from talking about the church corporately to talking about you and I within the church very personally. That our lives, our homes, our marriages, even our work, our job, should be placed upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. It should flow from my relationship in Jesus Christ. But here's what I want to get at this morning, the crux of what I want to get at. How does it make any sense to lay a solid foundation when building a building, but then put a mud hut on top of that foundation to use shoddy building materials to build the rest of the building? See, and I believe it's what we're using to build upon that foundation that determines whether or not we are or are not carnal. And you'll see what I mean here in our last few verses. In other words, is what we're using to build on our foundation in Christ. You say, well, I rest in Christ. Great, praise the Lord this morning. But what are you doing with the rest of your life? Is that consistent with Jesus and what he taught? What we see in the Acts of the Apostles and what we see in Paul's epistles, is it consistent with that? Or does it look more like the wisdom of the world, which is what was going on in Corinth? He says, verse 12, Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, that's one group of building materials, and these are non-combustible, they will endure testing, in contrast to wood hay, and straw. Not very good building materials. Kind of reminds you of the three little pigs. Isn't that nursery rhyme, right? One built with straw, one with sticks, and one with bricks. And the one that didn't fall down was the one with bricks. So that's the contrast here. One group is wood, hay, and straw, and the other one is gold, silver, and precious stones. Okay? Verse 13, each one's work... So as they're building, each one's work will become clear for the day, notice the day is capitalized, the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. The Bible teaches that every single one of us that know the Lord someday are going to stand before the Lord accountable for our faithfulness to the work that he's called us to do. It is one of the most sobering realities to me personally. And I know it's one of the most motivating things for Paul. He talks about it a lot in his epistles, a lot. And it wouldn't be there if it wasn't important. You could say, well, what are the rewards? What is that going to be like? I don't know. But Paul wouldn't have brought it up by inspiration of the Holy Spirit over and over again if it wasn't something that was very important. And so here in this instance, and again, this is not speaking about salvation, as we'll see in verses 14 and 15, and as we've seen together throughout our study of Romans and the book of John, salvation is a free gift. Okay, so what is he talking about here? He's talking about Romans 14, 2 Corinthians 5, the judgment seat of Christ. Maybe you've referred to it in the Greek. It's called the bema seat. You ever heard that? The bema seat of Christ is where we will stand to be judged based upon our faithfulness to the work that God's called us to do. 
This is different, different word in the Greek in Revelation 20 that's talking about the great white throne judgment. That's where unbelievers will stand and they'll be judged according to our sin. Believers, believers, we would never, we will not stand before the great white throne judgment. I want to make that clear. Your sin, if you're a believer, it was dealt with at the cross. So you'll never stand before the great white throne. But you will stand, if you're a believer, before the Bema seat to be rewarded for your faithfulness in the labor that God's called you to do in that day. And he says here, now follow me with this because it's very important. He says, each one's work will become clear. The work that we did this lifetime will become clear because it'll be tested by fire and it will be revealed of what sort it is, of what sort it was. Okay, so what does that mean? What does it mean that my work will be revealed on that day of what sort it was? Two possibilities that Bible teachers think. The first one is that my motives will become clear, that my work will be tested by the fire and my motives will become clear. That thing knocked me over this week when I was studying that. If you're with me, then at least we're together on that one. I don't know my motives half the time, three-fourths of the time. But it's true, right? Jesus had a lot to say about motive. He talked about the religious leaders. And he said they parade to the streets and they blow the trumpet because they're interested in the praise and adoration of men, of people. And he said, well, then they've had their reward already. He went on to say, but you do what you do in secret and your heavenly father will reward you. So motives could be a big part of this. And, you know, as one pastor once said, that kind of freaks me out because then I'm afraid instead of getting a crown one day, I'll get like a beanie with a little propeller on the top of my head. (laughs) Because I don't trust my motives sometimes and they're always in the right place. And God help me. God help us. Am I doing it because I have an ulterior motive deep down or because I want to be seen or because I want people to think highly of me? What are my motives for doing what I do? The second possibility, and I lean a little bit more in this direction, is that the distinction here is found between gold, silver, and precious stones versus wood, hay, and stubble. And that's why I believe that the work will become clear in the sense what he means is whether it is eternal or temporal work. And the reason why I believe that is verse 14. He says, if anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. What will endure? Things that are eternal. The work that you contributed to in this lifetime that has eternal ramifications, eternal consequences, that will endure in that day it will endure he says if anyone's work is burned verse 15 he will suffer loss but he himself will be saved see this has nothing to do with salvation yet so as through fire like by the skin of his teeth kind of thing he'll make it he's in and don't get me wrong heaven will still be heaven it will be no less heaven no matter what you're bringing to the table but you'll suffer some kind of loss as terms of your reward. Yet so is through fire. Like you'll still be kind of smoking on the way in kind of thing. (laughs) 
You know how the coyote always tried to blow up the roadrunner, but always he got blown up? Somehow he always survived and there was smoke emanating from him and he's black and scarred and all that. That was the coyote's plight in life. Picture a person, like in a movie or a TV show, escaping out of a burning building. And it always explodes as they're just getting out the door. It's pretty amazing how they do that. And they got nothing left, but they're alive. They're okay, but they lost all of their stuff. Now, why would that happen? Why is it that I would stand before the Bema seat of Christ, the reward seat, and not get much of a reward? Because the things and the wisdom and the motives of my life were carnal. They were of the world and not of the word, not of God. A carnal Christian life, either A, does the work of the Lord, but does the work of the Lord for the wrong motives. Envy and strife causing divisions within the body. Or B, a carnal Christian life doesn't really even engage in the work of the Lord at all. Why? Because they're too busy pursuing wood, hay, and straw. What is wood, hay, and straw? (laughs) Well, ironically, and I don't mean this to confuse you, so stay with me on this. Ironically, wood, hay, and straw in this lifetime are things like gold, silver, and precious stones. Figuratively, for his illustration, he was saying gold, silver, and precious stones are works that have eternal, lasting ramifications. But literally, in this lifetime, the very thing that distracts me from that are things like gold, silver, precious stones, money, a bigger house, a better car, a promotion at work, the things of this world that are coming to nothing when it's all said and done. It's like the guy who said, I'm going to beat the system. I've heard it said that you can't take it with you. I've heard it said that there are no U-Hauls following a hearse. But I'm going to beat the system. So he said to his wife, when I die, I want you to bury me in my best suit, and I want you to stuff my pockets with gold. That's what she did. He died, and she put all the gold in his pockets, and he got to heaven. This is not a real story, by the way. (laughs) Some of you are on the edge of your seat. Got to heaven, met St. Peter at the gates. I don't know why St. Peter's always at the gates. There's no indication that Peter's going to be at the gates of heaven, by the way. Nowhere in Scripture. It could be one of us, for all you know. So anyway, he goes to St. Peter at the gates, and he goes, check it out, Peter, look, I did it, I pulled it off. I brought my gold with me. And Peter said, what in the world are you doing bringing asphalt to heaven? Because the Bible says the streets of heaven are paved with gold. So the very thing that we spend our lives pursuing and going after, climbing over the top of each other for, and whining and crying and dividing about, are things that are coming to nothing. Asphalt in heaven. So go ahead, go out today when you leave here, be careful. Go out on Capitola Road, chip off a little piece of asphalt for yourself, 
carry it home with you, dust it off, study it, put it in a prominent place in your home somewhere so everyone can see, and they'll think that you're crazy. <laughs> and so is the Christian who says, I'm going to build upon a foundation of Jesus Christ, but I'm going to live for the things of this world. It's not compatible. It doesn't work. Because what you're saying is, I believe that the way to heaven is Christ, and by putting my faith in him, I'm going to live for eternity with him who owns cattle on a thousand hills. I'm going to be given a mansion in heaven, and I'm going to have eternal riches in Christ. And it's all about that. That's what I believe. But then I'm going to live for things that are going to perish in the fire. It doesn't work. It's not consistent. It's not compatible. My prayer for us today is that we would remember that these things, and I'm not preaching against, please understand, I'm not preaching against working hard at your job, putting a couple bucks away. I'm not preaching against wealth either. So I know a few people have a couple bucks. I'm not saying that's sin. I'm not saying anything like that. I'm not saying you shouldn't do well at your job. I'm not saying it's sinful to get a promotion because you did a good job. We should be good workers because we should be doing our job as under the Lord. I'm just saying understand that if our pursuits are things that we can't take with us to heaven, they're not going to matter when it's all said and done. I was with a man this week in my office, and I'll wrap up with this. I was with a man in my office this week. He'll be here in a, a few weeks. He's going to join our missionaries that are in Peru. His family is going down there also. Now, here's a man who I think is three years away from full retirement with this company. And he's giving that up to go be a full-time missionary in Peru. And he told me that his life verse now is that life is but a vapor. What does that mean? That life is short. And he said, I just don't have time anymore. And I don't know that we ever do. It's so quick, right? Just like that. A wisp of vapor. It's like uh, steam coming off a cup of coffee. That's how short life is in comparison to eternity. And so why would I want to get caught up pursuing the things and the wisdom and the motives of this world when those things are coming to nothing but our God is eternal and the life that he promises us and that he sealed us with, with his Holy Spirit, is eternal, everlasting, and he never runs out of riches at his right hand, pleasures forevermore. Amen?